שיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Shalom and welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamud from the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation on Shehamet in Highland Park, New Jersey. Joining me, my good friends, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Solomon Shek, the Day School of Long Island, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, Anshay Chesed in New York City. It's great to see you. We are starting the summer and we have to have a few shout outs. First of all, <clears throat> we are saying Mazel Tov to Charlie Barber Mann. They are loyal listeners, loyal watchers of the Parsha Talk. Uh, this is their 50th anniversary? 52nd. 52nd. Mazel Tov. And Mazel Tov also to all the staff that are coming up to Ramah this week, staff week. I think we're going to be playing uh, on the uh, camp speakers uh, on Kol Ramah this week. Uh, not live, but, but we're going to be there. Uh, and a big shout out to our good friend, Tommy Shemesh. Shalom, Tommy. On behalf of the, the three of us, Mitch Mernick, Mitch Mernick, what a great job you've been doing getting our podcast, getting our, our, our show to all of our listeners. We have, I think, over, over two listeners, <laughs> 200, 200. Uh, between the three of us and Rama, we, we have quite a loyal following. I keep promising T-shirts and uh, and the like, and we we love getting your responses. We had a very interesting response this week from one listener uh, who uh, took 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 us to task on how uh, critical we were of Moshe. It's it's it requires uh, I think a really thorough response. We're not going to go into it uh, now, but uh, just to say that that yeah, Moshe deserves a little bit of criticism. All of our leaders deserve criticism. Uh, he, uh, of course, had a difficult task. We all acknowledge that, but, you know, we, 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 we hold him to a higher standard. At any rate, Balak, this week, Parshat Balak. Wow, what an amazing Parsha we have. <laughs> this is, um, it represents a change of tactics. Balak, Melech Moab, is the king of Moab, just to, to orient ourselves in the story. Israel is now coming through the desert and making its way into the land of Israel had to circumnavigate around Edom because Edom let, did not let them through. And now uh, they had a skirmish with Sichon, uh, the Emirate king, and Og, the Bashan, Og Melech Bashan, And they are encountering Moab, Balak Melech Moab, the king of Moab. Balak sees that their, Israel has been victorious in these wars and really wants to change tactics. So he, he decides... He gets the idea, the strategy, that he's going to engage this prophet, Bilam. And uh, Bilam is going to, he's going to ask Bilam to curse Israel. Um, so we, this is where we are in the story. Um, I want to, let's, let's start off with just talking about Bilam a, a little bit. Give us, give us a, a little bit of detail, if it's possible, and... Um, and maybe your own characterization of him, maybe what you think of him. Um, Jeremy, want to give it a shot? This is your Bar Mitzvah Parsha too, so. So it is. How many years ago? Uh, I'm 55, so how many years ago was that? 42. 
42 years ago. The number of stations in Massey for next week. <laughs> All right, we're getting ahead of ourselves. So, Bill, um, um, so, uh, Bilam is actually the only, if I'm not mistaken, I mean, there's Ramses to the Pharaoh of Egypt, but I think the, maybe the only character in the biblical narrative whose existence is testified to by non-Israelite sources. There were their inscriptions mentioning Bilam from, from other people in the ancient Near East. So he's some sort of figure, to whatever extent it's a real person or, or, a, or a kind of a, uh, like a, a, a Mythic. Bilam is a well-known um, uh, uh, seer and a spirit medium and a prophet. The rabbis say, you know, the Torah ends is never arose, again arose a prophet in Israel like Moses. The rabbis say about it, among Israel there never arose another prophet like Moses. But among the nations, there was somebody who was his equal, and that was Bilam, who was Yodea Dat Elyon. He, he knows the divine mind, and he is portrayed as a, uh, a kind of person who has this special and unique uh, a relationship with God, but he is, as this whole story is, this is the only passage, you know, really in the in the Torah that is about how others see us. There's a big shift in perspective about how other people, not the Israelites, are looking at the Israelites. Um, and so he Balak, in his nervousness, sends for this, you know, hired hired uh, prophetic gun, and he sends to him, he's, he's on the Euphrates River, that's where he lives. He's not part of this you know, immediate conflict or this immediate era, unlike, you know, Moab, who was a descendant of Lot, and Edom, who was a descendant of Asaph. This is not Bilam's fight, right? He's, he's somewhere else. Um, he's a somewhat isolated or peripheral figure to all the things going on here, and he hires him. And we get a, a story of Bilam, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about more, that is, is very ambivalent, because on the one hand, there are some very negative features of Bilam's uh, behavior, but one thing that he always says is, I'm just a vessel for, for God on high. I just say what God says. This is not about me. And so there's one way to read this fellow who, that he is very loyal to, to the divine. So I, I, I would take a, uh, uh, that with a lot of criticism and say, you know, it's, it's a boast of piety to say, I'm just the Lord's vessel. I'm just the Lord's vessel because, you know, he, when, when, when Balak um, asks him and and says, you know, we're going to pay for you. He says, you couldn't pay me all the gold in the world, right? And because I only speak what God tells me. And, you know, when I read that pasuk, I, I think like, you know, you could have just said no and walked away. But I I get the, the, the sense that he loves, he loves being flattered. He's, he's a prophet. He's a guy who has a big reputation he probably knows how to, you know, he, we can see later on in the, in the Parsha, he knows, how to, he knows how to write a sentence. He knows, how to, he knows how, to, how to give a word, right? He loves the audience. He loves the theater of prophecy, and, and he can be bought. And- well, I, I think that might be a little bit unfair to him to say that he could be bought. He could only be bought if he said something that he shouldn't have said. And where is the evidence of that? But when you were talking, what struck me is that the way Jeremy described him, he's sort of an aloof figure. You know, he's not part of the location where he's going to prophesy. And I think that's an important point, because where Bilam comes in for biblical criticism, as criticism by the Bible, not the documentary hypothesis, is when he um, gets involved with 
the natives in Baalpa'or, and he's going to be killed in another week or two, and then he's on the scene. Right here, I think we can see him as an instrument, and, you know, I guess it depends in part on how we parse the wonderful comedy of the, the talking donkey. Um, but he, he does speak for God. And he seems to be faithful to that. It's not like he takes the money and then he could have just as easily taken the money and said what Balak wanted to hear. What difference would it have made to him? So I, 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 what, I what I see in Bilam is that Here's a remarkably talented person, a, a man with, with great a gift. athletic gifts and great linguistic gifts, but lacking the moral fortitude of an Abraham or a Moshe. And that tells us that, that a prophet is, the, the, the Hebrew prophet is someone who, who is kicking and screaming the whole way. The Gentile prophet is someone who says, yeah, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to go, but maybe, you know, if you, if you pay me a little bit. And obviously the Torah is engaged in a kind of polemic against him, okay, and makes him out to be a fool. How does he make him out to be a fool? Because in the scene, so, you know, after, after God then says to him, no, you can't go, no, you can't go, okay, you can go. And so he goes on his donkey, and the donkey, you know, sees the angel Imharbo Shlufa with the with the, the sword extended and the the donkey you know pushes Bilam against a wall and Bilam in in a, in in his you know extreme gentle compassionate moral <laughs> sense <laughs> beats the hell out of the donkey and the donkey then says hey what are you beating me up for <laughs> Okay. No, I, I think what we sometimes miss here is that the the theological backdrop of the story in some ways is how does God communicate and how people that God communicates with hear or understand God. You know, I one of the things that I continue to think about a great deal is when we read a book making allowances for the computer age, everything is black and white. There's no gray in the book, right? The print is black, the page is white. And so we don't always investigate how things appear. So the question, of course, is how does Bilam know it's God who's talking? And he doesn't know what's going on with the donkey until he becomes aware of it. And that's how it is with God. You don't always know. When we read the story, everything is certain. We know the end already. You know, for most of us, we're reading the story over and over again. There, the surprise isn't in the unfolding of the story so much as the new details that we become aware of through constant reading and rereading. All right. So here's a detail that, uh, you know, when it says, Vayigal Adunai et Enei Bilam, which means that God, Vayigal is to, to kind of open his eyes or lift up the curtain or whatever. You know, I, I read this and I go like, there's, there may be an echo of, of a word here, which is Vayagel, Vayagel, which is, you remember when Jacob has to take the, the stone off the well, that, that it says Vayagel, he, he, he rolls the stone. We, you know, he is covered with thickness. There is something that's thick that's covering his eyesight. Bilam. Right, but let's look at it for a moment from Bilam's point of view, right? Okay. So God opens his eyes, as it were, but how does Bilam understand what's going on? Yeah. Does he have a burst of inspiration? And, you know, again, I think that 
it, it's sometimes difficult for the person on the ground, as it were, to figure out God's message. You know, I think a lot about the prophets. Um, you know, God communicates with them in symbols, and he's always asking them if they understood the symbol that they then have to interpret, right? Because it's not clear what God's message is. I want to add just one more point here. Um, this passage about Bilam is often linked with the beginning of Vayikra, and the rabbis make a big point that Vayikra, God called, that's the prophetic address. It's with intention, and it's with direct communication. The word that's used with Bilam is Vayikar, that God sort of happens. You know, God is not in a constant communication with Bilam, and that also is an important distinction the way our ancestors saw non-Israelites relative to themselves as media of God. Jeremy, how do you weigh on this in, in this scene, you know, in, in terms of uh, what Bilam sees, what Bilam, how he responds, or just in general to his character and, and well, I, it's when you read the uh, the whole passage knit together, you know, as as one. Uh, it, of course, it is, is a satire of of a man who is an ass whose ass is smarter than than him, um, okay. and he's supposed to be. You know, it, it does make a mockery of of the prophet that, that even the mute, you know, the mute, you know, animal, yeah. donkey animal is can perceive what he cannot perceive but i keep coming back you know first of all going to the other biblical criticism uh, of the documentary (laughs) hypothesis it's it's often said that the that the that the donkey episode is is a cut and paste job and the the sweep the otherwise sweep uh, is no question that that the guy can be bought the the i totally agree with you elliot that 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 comedy if Bilam, Balak would give me his whole house of gold and silver, you know, as a <laughs> negotiating tactic. <laughs> uh, but, but I'm also drawn to a, a story that says, and, and, and you know, we, we were talking about this before the, before the recording began, about, um, about the, the sort of hostile designs that, that neighboring nations have upon Am Yisrael. You know, this is a story about... Um, God being a a force for blessing, okay? And Bilam thinks that, you know, Bilam thinks, certainly Balak thinks, and maybe Bilam is is himself a little bit more um, subtle about it, uh, that there can be words that can be said that can damage this people. But in the end, he is seized by and surrenders to blessing and becomes a vessel for, for, you know, praise. And and I find that... uh, Kind of awesome that the story, the, the it, it's true what you guys said about you know the Hebrew prophets are ambivalent figures. They argue, they add their own voice. Bilam is a mouthpiece, right? He is like the talking donkey in a certain sense. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't. We don't. We're not seeing a relationship with God. We're seeing something more like a spirit possession. But the spirit possession is a source of bracha, and it's kind of amazing that we as Jews have turned one of these words of the Gentile prophet into a major part of our synagogue life. Matovu Ohalecha Yaakov. So let's hold that for a second. I just want to, I want to, you know, I know some of, some of the people that watch you this, you know, our colleagues, they get a lot of good ideas for, for their own territory here. It's a big secret, right? Okay. So, so I want to push, put this one out here for you, which is along the lines that, that he is a prophet, but unlike the Hebrew prophets, look, th- in this scene, 
Bilam encounters Malach Adonai Nitzav Bader, an angel, okay? We have Hebrew figures, biblical figures who encounter angels. Abraham, Jacob, and Moses. And Joshua. And, okay, Abraham encounters angels. What does he do? He's he invites them in. Jacob encounters an angel, what does he do? He fights with them. Moshe sees an angel in the burning bush, what does he do? He goes closer. He comes, he says, hey, check this out. Bayar et Malach, the Kharbosh Lufabi he sees the, the exhibition of power, and he, he all of a sudden he gets weak need. <laughs> Too critical here. And he, he's, he's reverent to power. And this is what I see the problem here. This is not a guy who's going to say, hey, what are you doing here? Get out of my way. He is, he, he, he likes the, and he respects power. He likes wealth and he likes the theater. He likes the staging because, and now we'll shift over to, so Balak gets him, you know, to agree and finally goes up. And what does Bilam say? He says, make seven altars, take seven cows, take seven eyes. What is that all about? You know, that, you know, suggests, I like the extravagant, you know, I want to, you know, if I were staging this, I'd have him in, you know, real big regal clothing. He'd be, you know, this, he'd be a a total charlatan on the mountain with the seven altars lighting up all the different sacrifices. And, And he's trying to get a response. And now his response is nothing what Balak wanted. It's blessings instead of curses or favorable descriptions of Israel, as opposed to the, the, the horrible curses. And the first one it includes the, 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 the phrase, Hen am levadad yishkon uvagoyim lo which means this people who dwells apart, uvagoyim lo and not considered among the nations. So imagine that a sentence being said, what is Balak in the make of a sentence like that? That could be a source of reassurance for him because the people just need to pass by, right? Balak does not live in Canaan and there's Israel. He lives outside of it. So he's in the way of the Israelite journey. So this could reassure him. The question, of course, we're reading it in the Torah. What does it mean to us, the Israelites, or us, their descendants, how do we understand that we live apart like this? Are we going to treat our neighbors with disdain because we're better than they are? Are we going to recognize that there are boundaries for everything and we have a place and they have a place? It, it raises a lot of provocative questions, I think. I think this is the central question to the eternal Jewish conversation. Jeremy, you want to wait? <laughs> I, I do want to, I, so let's pivot to that conversation. I just I just want to resist saying that he is a charlatan because in fact, he does have a prophetic experience. God doesn't talk to people all that often. It's like, uh, it was, there was a great, uh, a few weeks ago, I found a, a lovely Hasidic drash about Korach. It was sort of, you know, in praise of Korach to a certain extent. So listen, Korach, the Torah wrote down Korach's words in his names when he when he says "Kidoshim uh, uh, Adonai." The Ishbitzer Rebbe said the Torah wrote that down for all eternity in Korach's name. That's got to make him pretty special. And <laughs> Jews have said, "Matovo Alecha Bilam 
the, these words are written down in his name. That's got to make him pretty special, and this experience pretty special. And he's blowing Balak's circuits when he says, yeah. essentially, "Tamot nafshi mot yisharim kamohu." I want to be with these guys. I love these guys. I think that we shouldn't think of him as a total fake. We should think of him as somebody who's okay, been deceived. Okay, but I, I think that, Jeremy, you raise a fascinating point. So we, we're familiar with the rabbinic expression that if you quote some something in someone's name, it brings redemption, or at least it causes their lips to move in the grave. But we all say matofu, and I've never seen a sitter where they attributed it actually to Bilam. So we take the words and we write him out. And that seems to be the ultimate rabbinic comment, that he is not worthy of redemption, uh, because we don't uh, uh, quote him. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. But okay, I still want to say, not a shot. Okay, but speaking about the other point, um, I think that this is, this is really fascinating in this one section of the Torah, where, again, as I noted before, it's, it's the story that is told not from our perspective. Yeah. Right, um, it's the tar- story, story that is told from those who look at us, and I think that the that the you know before Am Yisrael throughout history, and certainly today, the questions of whether you really are could ever be would even want to be uh, to be not counted as one of the nations. You know, we see that we see that going on in conversations, for example, throughout the throughout the. 20th century about Zionism, what is it? Is it to be a nation like all the other nations? Is it to be Laor Goyim, you know, the, the, the model nation? Uh, do we, in fact, wish to, you know, live in, in fortress Israel? Um, do we want to join the community of nations? What in the United States, you know, where assimilation means something quite different? Uh, do we want to have strong ethnic boundaries? Are we suspicious of those strong ethnic boundaries? That's what makes this story, I think, really, you know, compelling as a, as a discussion point for contemporary Jews. I, th- I, I want to just uh, elaborate on that. I think, I think it's, it's really crucial. Look, we, we are at the cusp in, in the United States of entering, re-entering uh, the Iran deal. And Israel has said, we will do everything possible to prevent an Iranian nuclear bomb, which will include maybe you know, acting alone. You know, up until now, Israel has acted alone and it acted in concert. If Israel uses the policy of Am Levadad right, you dwell among, means our interests can only be handled by ourselves. And, and we cannot rely on the superpower of the world to defend our interests because the superpower has its own interests. And this, this is the, you know, I, 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 you know this, this is keeping many of us up at night. Because we, we want the United States to be on the same page with Israel, especially when it comes to this issue, and we see that, that it's not. And, and we know that it's disastrous either way. That for Israel to act alone in this instance would probably result in disaster. And for Israel not to act alone was also... I mean, it's... it's well, listen, I, I think that, I think that the, uh, first of all, there's obviously all kinds of... Uh, you know, I, I read anything I can about this topic, and presumably... The people involved know a lot more than I do about, uh, about it. You can only hope. One, one can only hope. Uh, but <laughs> but um, what was I going to say is that, you know, Balak, and we talked about this a little bit before the recording began, uh, Balak sees that Israel has successfully had, war, had wars against some of his neighboring people and does not tr- 
try to, does not consider whether there is allyship. Um, and, and it's like a barking dog, sort of. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and, and I'm wondering, like, certainly about contemporary Medinat Yisrael, um, you know, that, that sense coming out of the Shoah, of course, and coming out of some of other early Israel, Israeli experiences that we have only ourselves to rely upon, is like kind of on steroids over much. And when there are friends, you can't say, listen, I'm, I'm on my own here. I don't trust you. Why would you say that to your friends as much as possible? You want to say, I want to be with my friends. There may come times when you say, I can't rely on you and I have to, I have to uh, cut myself off for you. But I think that's long run. That doesn't look very encouraging. Yeah, but it's about survival, and, and, and when it's about survival, you have to act alone. I mean, you know, I think, obviously, we, we, you know, I, I agree with you. We don't, we don't, would that we know as much, but, but as policy, I think this is, it's, it's, it may not be good policy or bad, it, bad policy, it's a way of understanding ourselves in the world, and, and I think that Jews today have this, this great problem, especially Jews in America also, to understand themselves as separate and other, or to understand themselves as linked universally. And, and this is the precise line that, that, that divides, you know, progressives from others and divides, you know, universalists from particularists and, and really is one of the fault lines in, in Jewish people today. Do we belong to the world or are we our, our own separate people? You, you ha- the answer simply must be, a, you know, a productive dialectic of both, right? If, if we are an isolated people, um, then uh, um, <laughs> like a cell membrane, okay, it has to keep some things in and some things out. If there's no membrane, there's no cell. If there's not a sense of Jewish uniqueness and particularism, Jewish community is meaningless. And if it's a kind of a rigid, um, you know, keep the world out, I can't see that winning. I mean, obviously, I'm in favor of Jewish particularism. I like endogamy norms. I like senses that people are in, you know, that their lives are because they belong, the meaning of their lives is that they belong to Am Yisrael. That's, that's my life, and that's the communities that, that I have been a member of and tried to work to build. But um, I also think that when on steroids, it becomes a little neurotic. Okay. So just one more, one more point on this, which is I think Bilam is the archetype of the of the universalist. He, he doesn't belong to any group. <clears throat> he 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 is the universal man, and he doesn't speak from a particular experience, an ethnic experience, or a, or a, an experience of Bilam. All the great writers uh, in the world, people who you know, they they are speaking from deep particular experiences and giving universal messages. He speaks from a universal perspective and only gives a particular message to, to, to the Jewish people. So it's interesting the way that you put that, Elliot, because Bilam is speaking for God, I think. And what you're suggesting is that religion has to be specific, that there is no universal religion. And that's a defect in Bilam is that he can't locate himself anywhere. And therefore, what seems to be good for everyone actually ends up being good for no one, except that his words are so beautiful. His words are beautiful. They get enshrined in our, in our in, you know, sanctuaries, and, and Matovu Olecha Yaakov, and we sing them, etc. And just to add something about Matovu, why do we say Matovu at all 
this quotation from the non-Jewish prophet, I think because when we enter into a holy space and we're attempting to communicate with the divine, we have to enlarge ourselves, that we're not supposed to withdraw into ourselves, we're supposed to expand out of ourselves, as it were. So here, I think our use of the words of Bilam in the liturgy is a kind of universalizing experience. I totally disagree with you. Well, you feel free. <laughs> I totally disagree. I think, I think reciting these words does two things. One, it re-identifies ourselves with the experience of biblical Israel in the desert and puts us and, and makes us understand ourselves as, as a, a nation in the process of becoming. Two, it's a coded message. It's a coded message to Jews who are reading the first line of this and not reading the last line of it. And the last line of that passage says, which, I don't have the English translation here, but let me just say in general, which means, you will eat your enemies and you will crush their bones, okay? So, so it's like Shfocha Exactly. A Jew walks into shul in a diaspora where, where people are not so favorably inclined to Jews, anti-Semites, and people who want to destroy them. Walk in, walk in the Roman ghetto and see what's on the, the church outside the, the synagogue in Rome and, and have the Hebrew scripture, you know, announcing to you that you are sinners, right? And, and have that experience as a pre-modern Jew, and, and understand that when you come into synagogue, the, the editors of the Siddur were saying, you're coming for fortification. You're coming not only to remind yourself that a Gentile saw of goodness in you, but you're reminded that God said, through this Gentile prophet, that when you are faced with your enemies, you will make your enemies. So I think, though, for most people, they don't think of the last line. When we have what we have in the Sidur, which is a pastiche of biblical passages in many places, we're not always thinking about the context. Sometimes we're thinking about how the words relate with the other verses that they're put with. And I don't think that that negative message is, frankly, appropriate for coming into the synagogue. That prayer is an attempt to get past the negative message, I would think. Yes. So so my late teacher, Israel Silver, Rabbi Israel Solomon, is so this is the, this is a, uh, the tension of the public and private, you know that whole passage Matova, the whole prayer is is all about you know the the stepping into prayer is I want the most intimate feelings you know being expressed and yet I'm doing it in a community and so I I'm at the the junction point of my public and private emotions. Okay, I, I think that the drash that you that you expanded about you know locating the Matova in the in the course of Bilam's larger oracle, you know, it's, it's obviously not wrong. Uh, it, it refers somewhat surprisingly in that passage to Agag, like yes. the Amalekites, like well, how do the Amalekites get in here? Um, but I, I also think that, I, I'm going to go with Barry on this one, that it's, it is a drosh that can be made, and, and to certain people who can, who can you know, uh, and as, you, as we travel through the pardes of, of the multiple levels of reading it, it's a perfectly wonderful drash, but I think that the experience of worship that that that, that little pastiche paragraph creates is, is is exactly otherwise. This is a blessed and beloved and wonderful place that you are entering, in which you are going to you know You're going to worship and reverence, and and I think it's a positive and 
not necessarily an adversarial moment. Of course, there's been adversarial moments throughout throughout Jewish history, um, but I think that in the in macro, I think what's going on here is you're entering the sacred Jewish space. Isn't it wonderful? Okay, fine. So, so I, 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 I yes, liturgically it works that way. But let's not let's not forget that this is exactly what you said earlier, Jeremy. About about this is the way the others see us, and that running through this, and this is why I guess I'm a little charged about this, because we're living in a kind of spasm of anti-Semitism now, which which has thrown the Jewish people on its ear. We really don't know how to deal with this, because we don't deal with this, you know, we want to be loved, you know, we, can, we can't understand why people hate us, but I would say this whole story is a proto-story, prototype of, of anti-Semitism. In fact, the, the punchline, Nevarechecha varuch v'orarechecha aror, those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. To, you know, I, I've used that over the last little while as saying, you know, that's what anti-Semitism really is. Those who curse you will be cursed. Those who bless you will be... If only people understood that when you bless the Jewish people, you are blessing the principles, you are, you are acknowledging the central principles which, which lead to, to a full and meaningful and, and, and fulfilled life. Um, when you curse the Jewish people, you yourself will be cursed. You, you, and you will, be de- you will deserve to be cursed. And that this is running through the story based on the fact that you have, you know, I've called him a charlatan and a canard. You know, he's obviously a sophisticated <laughs> figure, Bilam. But even sophisticated figures can be duped in, 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 in good ways and bad ways. And, and this is a, a whole uh, comic a story that plays up this this big question: How do we function in the world? How, what's what's our place in the world? Uh, and 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 we, we're getting that experience in the desert already, and we're going to move through it. And you know, as the as the parsha ends, it's also moving through this experience. I mean, take us to the end of the parsha, maybe. If, you know, you had something interesting to say about about how the parsha ends and. Well, shortly after the episode of the oracles, the uh, there's a, a kind of an orgiastic scene in which the Moabite women, um, uh, the Israelite men sleep with the Moabite women in what seems like a sort of an orgiastic worship of their god Baalpeor. Baalpeor is is like this, the grungiest, most like this is idol worship at its worst, right? In the, 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 the crudest, <laughs> the, <Lord's best. laughs> the, the crudest and, the, and, and if there's refinement to spirituality, to religion, Baalpur is the exact opposite. And, and the, the rabbis understand that part of the worship of Baalpur, because of the, because of a, a word play that goes on is defecating on the idol. I mean, this is just the bottom of the pit. Um, and, and so an Israelite man and, a, and, a, uh, and a, Midianite women are engaged in such process, and Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron Kohen, as we say at, at a Brit Milah, I was at a, we had a Brit Milah on the show yesterday. It was wonderful to welcome another, welcome Judah Ezra Siegel, another member of Am Yisrael. Uh, Pinchas is enraged, and he takes he's the ultimate fanatic. He takes a spear, and because because Zimri ben Salu and Kozbi Batsur are physically arrayed in such a way that one spear blow can get them both. Um, uh, he, he gets them. And and the, the way the story is portrayed is, you know, from the curse, uh, that didn't work. 
the Moabites were in trouble. They tried to curse. That didn't work. So they tried something else, which is to seduce the people. And of course, people often don't resist sexual seductions. They fall into it. And so we couldn't get you with words. We're going to get you with bodies. And the Israelites very regrettably um, uh, participate. And Pinchas is seen in his fanaticism in the Torah. The rabbis have a much less positive view of him. Uh, in the Torah, it's seen as his fanaticism staves off the plague. So in, in the way that we're talking about now, about, you know, how separate must we be? Yes, exactly. This this story comes along and says, you, got, you guys got way too intermingled over exactly, there. Exactly, exactly. And so I mean, we could use that as, a, as the, the overarching theme here. It's like, how do we mingle, get along with, mix with the nations, the other nations? We have had experience here. This Parsha really gives us a kind of a, a different look at it, sometimes comical, sometimes very serious, sometimes satirical. I mean, it's, it's just, um, you know, in, in a way, it, it takes us out of the, the, the other stories of rebellion and complaining. It gives us a little bit of lightness, lightheartedness, a little bit of humor, a little bit of irony. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, end, the end story is a, is a dirty joke, but is serious, right? Like... Um, there's a, there's a kind of, uh, you know, crude, dirty joke quality to it, but it raises these serious issues. I just want to say one other thing, by the way, about the universal and the particular, because this is uh, uh, my bar mitzvah from 1979, uh, I, have to, I have to say two things about this. First of all, I had a wonderful bar mitzvah experience thanks to the wonderful chazan of my synagogue as a child, um, uh, Mayor, Mayor Elias um, Mayor Ben Sinchai, who was a wonderful guy, he was from Vilna, he was in the camps. I thought of him back in the day as ancient, but in reality, he probably wasn't 70 years old or, or maybe in his early 70s. He died shortly after my bar mitzvah. I loved everything about him. I loved studying with him. But I have to say, from my perspective now, I learned to recite a haftarah that I didn't even know what the words meant. Nothing. I was just a trained monkey for that day. And I feel very bad about it because... The Haftarah concludes with some of the most important words of the Bible, which we've seen in lots of places from Micha. It has been told to you, human being, Adam, what is good and what does God demand from you? Not, not, you know, something particular. Adam, Micha, the prophet is speaking to Adam, human being. Uh, he, he, was, he had been told what, what is good and what God demands of you. Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with your God. And that's a kind of a human religion. Keep Shabbos and don't eat meat and milk and give, give interest-free loans and all the things that are the, the constitutive of Jewish experience. That's not what Micha is talking about right here. He's talking about human religion. And so I, that to me is just a... Uh, an important nuance on the particularism and universalism dialectic that's going on here. So what we might say is that the Parsha with the Haftarah preserve attention that accompanies us throughout our lives, that our danger is that we think we're get, that this is a problem like the Gordian knot, that we're simply going to slice it and be done with it. But we can't. You know, the Gordian knot image, if we're going to use that for a moment, is with us all the time. And we might entangle different threads at different times and do different things with it, 
but the knot itself is not going to go away. So the issues that we've raised, you know, sometimes we'll answer them one way, sometimes we'll answer them another way, but our task is to remind ourselves that these are issues that don't go away, that we have to address and readdress them. Absolutely, and that's, that's a good way to kind of draw the bow on, on this, this Parsha. This Parsha, if, if, if anything, elicits all of these conversations, and you can see how, how excited we get about that. Uh, just, I want to thank everyone for, for watching, for listening. We enjoy this. We enjoy sharing Torah with you. Uh, mazel tov to all people celebrating Simchas and to our friends at Ramah. Have a great, great start of the summer. And we're going to be with you every Shabbat, every week. You're going to have Parsha Talk coming to you. Not live, but it's going to be coming to you on Ramah. We want to say to everyone, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. If my children are out there, if Barry's children are out there, your Abbas love you. (laughs) (laughs) Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you.